0: we
1: Tonight, we have Dr. Kenneth Howell. Um, Dr. Howell was a Presbyterian minister for 18 years. He taught in a Protestant seminary for seven years. He taught Hebrew, Greek, Latin, biblical interpretations, and the history of Christianity. During his ministry and his teaching, he started reading about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and that started him on a six-year journey to Catholicism. He was confirmed and received into the church in 1996. Dr. Hall has two PhDs, one in linguistics from Indiana University in Bloomington, and a second in history of Christianity and science from the University of Lancaster in the United Kingdom. He taught in higher education for almost 30 years, and most recently um, for 10 years as a professor of religion at the University of Illinois. He had classes in history, theology, and philosophy of Catholicism. And he also served as a director of the Institute of Catholic Thought at the St. John Catholic Newman Center there. He has served as the resident theologian for Marcus Grodie's Coming Home Network International. And as a senior fellow at Scott Hahn Saint Paul Center for Biblical Theology, in 2000 he received the Pro Ecclesia et Pontifice, an award from Saint Pope John Paul II, in recognition of his service to the Church. Um, for a layman, that's the equivalent of a Monsignor. <laughs> He is the author of eight books. The latest is entitled The Mystery of the Altar, which contains Eucharistic meditations for 365 days a year. He's married to Sharon Canfield for 46 years. They have three children and 11 grandchildren. And tonight, Ken will provide his thoughts on Catholic consolations for troubled times.
0: Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming and staying tonight. I tonight, it's a great joy to be here, even though I do have a, a cold that I picked up from one of my grandsons. Uh, but I assure you, it's not COVID. Uh, I had a test on Thursday, and it was negative. Um, but it's great to be here with you. I actually came to this church and to the St. Louis area. Uh, oh, I don't know, must have been 15 years ago or so, and very much enjoyed. Uh, being around the people here in this diocese. So it's been a while since I've been here, but I do glad. I, I want to thank uh, Mrs. Lucille Cortese, uh Anne, her assistant, uh, the whole St. Joseph team that makes these things possible, as well as, of course, your pastor. I understand he's not with us tonight, and I'm sorry that I'll perhaps meet him on another occasion. Tonight, as uh, Joanne mentioned, My topic is Catholic consolations for troubled times. I wonder how many of you might agree with me that we're living in troubled times. (laughs) I don't see too much violent disagreement out there on that one tonight. We are indeed living in troubled times. And people might identify those troubles as being different things, but everybody seems to be aware that something is just not quite right. Something is, in some sense, terribly wrong. So the question I want us to ask ourselves tonight is, what do we as Catholic Christians, the Catholic faithful, how do we live our lives in the midst of this world in which we live now. these troubled times. You know, I'm not terribly troubled for myself because, well, I don't know how many more years I'm going to live. but how Maybe it's five, maybe it's ten, maybe it's twenty, I don't know. But whatever it is, I think I'm ready for heaven. At least, mostly. But I worry about my children and my grandchildren and the world that they will grow up in. And so, Yes, I'm concerned about the world that we're living in. You know, in the past year, we've been living under the uh, cloud of this pandemic, where genuine health concerns have perhaps been coupled with political manipulations. I have a friend, a close friend, who is a business professor at the University of Illinois and a devout Catholic. And uh, I happened to see him after mass one day and I said, Steve, uh, tell me, uh, are you, uh, what do you think about this pandemic? I said, certainly nobody went out and just created it, but it does seem that it's being used for less than honorable purposes. And oh, you said, oh, without a doubt. So as a business professor who no doubt keeps up on things going on in society, because you have to if you're in business, he sees very clearly that these circumstances have been manipulated for personal and political gain. Now, I don't know about every area of the world or society, but I've been an educator for 33, 35 years, and I can see at least something about education. Did you know that in Chicago, the teachers' unions there voted after the doctors had said that it's perfectly fine for elementary school children to go back to school, in person learning, they voted that they were not going to do it. So I have to ask myself the question did the teachers in Chicago care about the children of Chicago? And I heard at the other day that just San Francisco followed suit, they did something very similar. How do we find consolation and strength? to live faithfully during these times. And notice I didn't say live successfully, only faithfully. Because Mother Teresa reminded us very aptly of what the saints have taught us for many centuries, and that is that we're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful. And that makes success in God's hands. So like soldiers going out into the battle, not knowing whether they will live or die, we need to be ready to do God's work in this place. What do we need to live life faithfully during this time? Well, I want to suggest tonight that we need three things, three important truths. The first is we need knowledge. We need to understand what's going on in our world and see it from God's perspective but with that knowledge we need to couple courage and hope because it's not enough just to know in your head what to do you have to live it out and that living out needs to come from within so the virtue of hope has to be at the very core of who we are but then when we do turn our eyes out to the world around us, how should we live? And I'd like to say something that might not first come to mind in the light of what we've said, but I think it's crucial, and that is to continue to live our Christian and Catholic lives with compassion, with loving compassion that is not afraid to do what God asks us to do. Now in order to understand these three things, and first of all knowledge, I need to, I'd like to take you back 20 centuries ago to the second century AD, when less than 50 years after the death of the Apostles, and only 20 years after the death of the last Apostle, who was Saint John, If we go back to that time, I think we can understand something that many Christians don't understand, and that is exactly what martyrdom is. Now, if I asked you to know what martyrdom is, you'd probably say, well, it's dying for Christ or dying for the church, and you'd be right. But there's more to martyrdom than just that, and by studying the actual martyrdoms of our spiritual ancestors, we can see how it applies today. You see, I'd like to make the bold statement that the Romans did not persecute Christians. They prosecuted them. And let me explain what I mean by that. In just a few moments, I'll tell you the story of St. Polycarp of Smyrna. And if you've never read that story, it's, it's online everywhere, so just type in his name and martyrdom, and you'll get to the story. It doesn't take very long to read it. But before we get to that story, it's important to understand the background. In the early 2nd century, there, the emperor was a man named Trajan. And there was a governor that he had appointed to the area of Bithynia, which is in Northern Asia Minor, or what is today, Turkey. Pliny was having trouble. Already in the year 110, he writes a letter to the emperor, and he asked the emperor what he should do about these Christians. Now think about that for just a moment. It's 110 AD, that's less than 20 years, or maybe 20 years, after the death of St. John the Apostle. It's less than 40 years after the death of Peter and Paul in Rome. The gospel has spread all over the world, the known world to them. And now it seems to be causing trouble up in Asia Minor. And we know Paul established churches in Asia Minor, but we hear the same problem elsewhere, for example, we know that Ignatius of Antioch. Now, notice, Antioch is in the east, over by Jerusalem. And, and Ignatius was brought all the way across Asia Minor and Greece to Rome. And we think it was the year 107 that he was thrown to the beasts in the Roman Colosseum. I wonder how many of you have ever seen the Colosseum in Rome. Right? It's sort of decrepit now, but if you go up, you can actually see the level of which they threw the people down, and underneath that's where they kept the wild beasts, and then they let them come up and eat the people alive. That's what happened to Ignatius of Antioch. Probably three to five years later, Pliny writes this letter. And he says to the emperor, he says, What should I do with these Christians? What's the right and just way to handle them? Should I go after them? Or should I wait for them to be brought to me? And if they do come before me, how should I question them? What's the right way to deal with these Christians? So Trajan, the emperor of the entire empire, writes back to Pliny. And he says this, don't go looking for Christians. That's wrong. Don't go looking for them. But if they are accused before you, then you should examine them carefully. Make sure that the charges against them are just and right, and not just the whims of their accusers. So you they were asking the question, how do I distinguish a, a, a legitimate charge from one that's not? And then it said... Ask them if they're willing to live by the laws of the Roman Empire. And if they are, let them go free. But if they refuse, then you can punish them severely, even by death if necessary. What was Trajan saying to Pliny? He was saying that the way to deal with Christians is to ask for conformity to the Roman ways of life and thought. And so what happened to Polycarp, which we think was around the year, maybe 135, it could have been up to 155. So this is like 30, 40 years later. Polycarp was called before the proconsul, or the governor or the, this mayor of the city of Smyrna. Now Smyrna, in case you don't know, is the modern city of Izmir in Turkey. It's on the western coast of Turkey. And you can still see Christian ruins there from the times of the apostles. So Polycarp was brought in front of the, the, council, the proconsul, and he was questioned. But the story is even more interesting than that. Earlier in, a few days earlier, he had had a dream that he would die while his pillow was burning in his dream. Then his Christian faithful came to him and said, you're our bishop, you need to flee the city, get away from the persecution. And he said, no, 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 I'm staying here with my flock. But then after being strongly urged, Polycarp said, okay, I'll go out into the country. So he went out into a country house But the soldiers that were looking for him still came and found him and got him. And the story is so beautiful because they come into the house and Polycarp says, Welcome, we're glad to have you here. Please sit down and enjoy a meal. Would you give me only an hour or two to go up on the roof and pray? And it says very explicitly in the story, the soldiers wondered out loud, What's the point of coming here and getting this 86-year-old man he certainly can't do any harm, right? Why are we here to arrest this man? But they enjoy the meal, and he goes up and prays. And then he comes down. And as he comes down, he quietly and reservedly says, I'm ready to go. So the soldiers take him to the proconsul, And as they're talking, he asks him to get into his carriage because they're going to go to the Colosseum or the the stadium. And the stadium is full of of Jews and Greeks and other barbarians, as the Greeks called them. And as they're driving there, the proconsul says to him, look, he says, why don't you have compassion and mercy on your old age? All you have to do is to perform the the required sacrifice. In other words, I just want you to go through the motions of showing your loyalty to the emperor and to the laws of the emperor. I don't care. Now I'm paraphrasing. But he was saying, I don't care what you believe. And by the way, we know that the Romans allowed a large diversity of belief. Have you ever heard that word before? Diversity? It's a big word today, right? Diversity. Well, guess what? They had all kinds of diversity in the Roman Empire. You could believe anything you wanted to boy. You just had to show loyalty to the empire. So, he says, look, just do the sacrifice. Say Caesar is Lord. Remember, it says in, in Scripture, Jesus is Lord. Right? So, this was a question for Polycarp of his final obedience. But for the governor, it was just a a political maneuver. My friend, we face exactly the same situation today. I doubt that anyone is gonna come knocking at your door and say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And if you say yes, they'll shoot you or take you off to prison. No, they're not gonna persecute you because of your religion. Do you know why they're going to persecute you? Because you don't conform. Because you don't think the way they think. And I know this from personal experience, And which I'll tell you about in just a moment, but think about it for just a moment. There have been people that have lost jobs because they do not endorse same-sex marriage. Or transgenderism. There have been people that have been blackballed for their politically incorrect views. Do any of you know who Gina Carano is? Gina Carano is a very athletic actress and she played in the movie, I haven't seen it, but The Mandalorian which is a Star Wars movie. And she was tweeting things, and Facebooking things, and all this, and they decided to let her go from her position as actress, or the lead actress, on this movie, because they thought her views, and they, here I quote, they are, you know, abhorrent. The idea that there is someone, or some view, that is completely unacceptable, is actually protected by the Constitution, of the United States. After President Trump left office, and it doesn't matter what you think of President Trump, that's not my point, he was banned from Twitter and from Facebook. And you know who made the greatest outcry of the injustice of that? It wasn't Americans, it was Europeans. It was people like Angela Merkel in Germany and Emmanuel Macron in France, because they could see very clearly that this was a suppression of ideas and of speech. That's what we're facing. People won't persecute you because you're a Catholic. They'll persecute you because you don't conform to the way they think. That's what persecution was in the very early church. Well, conformity then, that's the big thing. But Christians believe in truth. And so sometimes we can conform and. Other kinds, we can't. And so regardless of race, religion, or political views, we cannot conform to things that are not true. Some things we may not know whether they're true. But when we know that something is not, excuse me, when we know that something is not true, we can't allow ourselves to be told that it is true. Now let me ask you a question, how many, time, how many of you have recently noticed that there's a difference between men and women? Now some of you I can see are my age or older or maybe, maybe just a little bit younger. Do you remember a time when we were children, Do you remember when people talking about men becoming women and men, women becoming men? I don't even remember that in the 1990s. The idea that a man could become a woman, or a woman become a man, it's not just that it's, it's not just that it's against our religion. It's against natural law. It's against nature. But that's the kind of conformity that we will be asked to give. We must recognize That there's nothing new under the sun. But knowing these things is not enough. We can't just have a certain kind of knowledge and then go on with our lives. No, our knowledge must be joined with courage to be willing to do what is necessary. And the only way to get courage is to be infused With a sense of hope. Hope that allows us, that animates us to do what is necessary to do. St. Paul in Romans 8.24 says that we are saved by hope and that hope, he says, that is seen is not really hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait we waited for endurance, or with endurance. Our hope does not rely upon the American political system. Our hope does not rely upon even the Constitution, as you might say in a human sense, as sacred as that document is, and it's very important. But our hope doesn't rely upon the Constitution. Our hope is in God the sovereign God who is in control of the world, though sometimes we may be tempted to doubt it, he is in control of our times, though we may despair at times. But we must remember that the church has very wisely understood that hope is a theological virtue. It comes from God. We may have a little bit of hope here, a little bit of hope about that, So forth about our family members or whatever it is. But true, deep seated hope comes from God. And so, if you lack hope, all you need to do is follow the direction of my spiritual director. He constantly shocks me. When I tell him about a problem, he says, Ken, have you prayed about it? All we have to do is pray. And God, will answer by infusing us with this hope. Our hope can grow and can increase as we learn to connect with those great saints of the past, like St. Polycarp. And it can grow through the regular reception of the sacraments, particularly confession and the Eucharist. And for those of us that are married, we can call upon the grace that God gives us through through that sacrament. We can grow in hope as we meditate upon the Word of God and fix its teachings in our hearts and in our soul. In other words, what we need to do is to live ordinary life in an extraordinary way. Mother Teresa, Saint Mother Teresa once said, that do little things with great love. You've heard that, right? Do little things with great love. Live an ordinary life. And in fact, in another second century document, the Epistle to Diognetus, it says in there in one point, chapter 5 or 6, he says that Christians are just like anybody else. They wear the same clothes, they eat the same food, they live in houses that are the same. They look like everybody else's life. They share their goods with others, though they don't share their wives. Right. In other words, they look on the outside like everybody else, but inside, they're very different people. He goes on to say that what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. Your prayer, your life of moral obedience to God is like salt that keeps this world from falling apart God put you here at this time, this place for that very purpose hope then as it grows within us leads to courage and so I want to encourage you don't be afraid to articulate what you know to be true I've been a Catholic now for, let me think, I've been a Catholic for 24, going on 25 years now. And you know, it's interesting to compare the cultures, regardless of the teachings, the cultures of Protestant churches and Catholic churches. And Catholic church, believe me, I I could not be happier than being a Catholic. I would never, never think of anything else. But there is one thing I think that we need to improve on. Sometimes Catholics are way too reticent to speak up about when things need to be said. So if you have the opportunity in some way or another, God calls us to evangelize. We need to share this truth with others. I could give you so many examples of this, but because of time, I need to move on very quickly. So live your ordinary life in an extraordinary way. And that means accepting God's providence in your life. God has not put you in a random world. He's guiding every step of your life. How many of you, in the course of your life, have had something, maybe one, two, or three things, that were totally unexpected, that surprised you? that shocked you, maybe. I've had several things in my life like that. I never planned on them. One of them, one of the more recent ones, was in 2010. As Joanne introduced me, she mentioned that I taught in the religion department of the University of Illinois for about 10, 11 years. And during that time, I taught courses on Catholicism. I guess I was the resident expert, you might say. Well, guess what? Every semester, I taught a course called Introduction to Catholicism. It was kind of a general survey in the whole. But it was a college level course, so you know, we got into some depth at times. Every semester, I, pre- I taught two, sermon, or two lessons, two lectures, having to do with Catholic moral teaching. I gave a general theory of natural moral law and then I applied it to some issue within our society. Often I did abortion or, you know, divorce or something like that. But this particular year, I chose to do it about homosexuality and same-sex marriage. After I did this, there was a a lot of disagreement in the class. And I'd done this topic before, and the students respectfully might disagree, but there was no big uproar about it. Well, long story short, one of the young ladies in the class sent an email to the LGBT group on campus complaining about me. That was sent to the president of the university, and that was sent to the department chair of my my department. He emailed me and said, we needed to get together and talk. When we finally did, he showed me a piece of paper, and he said, did you write this email? Yes, I did. He said, I'm willing to work with you, Ken, as much as you'd like, but you can't teach her anymore. What? I can't teach her anymore? You can't just fire me like that. I mean, you don't do, you don't do that to a university professor, believe me. But, it's, but, you know, I tried to reason with it. I was like, well, wait a minute. Just, we have freedom of speech. We have academic freedom, even more than the average person. We're supposed to have the academic freedom to be able to express things in class. He was adamant, oh no, you cannot teach her anymore. There was an uproar like you wouldn't believe. Now maybe you didn't hear about it in Missouri, but believe me, when the university told me I could not, and it got out, I had hundreds, maybe a thousand of my former students go on Facebook, they contacted the media, and they just let it all be known what was happening at the University of Illinois and the university all had really had egg on its face. For sacking a professor, for teaching, by the way, you notice what I was teaching? I was teaching Catholicism in a course of Catholicism. How strange is that? Well, I've seen firsthand, and if it hadn't been for the Alliance Defending Freedom, I would have lost my job permanently Now, my point only in saying this is this. I never expected this. I didn't realize how mean people could be. But God's providence brought this into my life. And I accepted it as he gave me that challenge. And I had to ask myself the question, how shall I now live in the light of what I've been through? This is what I'd like to share with you lastly tonight in a very quick a very short order. What we need to do as Catholic Christians is to live a life of compassionate love. I think I've learned through many years that it's very difficult. It's sometimes even without any real effect to try to argue people into the kingdom, into the church. Now we should know our faith. We should give answers for it. No doubt about that. But that's not enough. What we need to do is we need to be able to show people that we live a life that's different than them. Not in an arrogant way, but only to say that life is, our life is better than you realize. You see, many people out there are ignorant that they could, they could even live a life of happiness. Especially young people today. They don't, realize, they don't believe they can be happy. They just have to accept this mundane and meaningless world that they live in. But they don't. And we are failing to do what we should do if we don't share the truth with them. Remember while we pray in the Confidior at Mass? I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I've sinned. In what I have done and what I have failed to do. Failing to do what we should do is also wrong. So, what should we do? We should learn to share these wonderful things with people out of love, out of compassionate love. One of the other church fathers of the fourth century. Asterius was talking about the bishop, one of the bishops in the church, and he said, This is a shining example of holy truths. They teach us that we should not look on men as lost or beyond hope. Have you ever felt that maybe our world's beyond hope? It would be a natural thing to feel at this time of life, but it's not. And neither are your neighbors, and neither are those people that are living in deep sin they're not lost or beyond hope they can be brought to God I could give you example after example of this, of people that on the outside looked like there was no hope for them at all I remember, does the name Dr. Nathan uh, no, Bernard Nathanson mean anything to you? He was the doctor the Jewish doctor who was performed, he's told, I heard him say it with his own lips, he was responsible, directly or indirectly, for the deaths of 75,000 children by abortion in New York City, at which he hung his head and said, I submit to you that is a horrible moral burden to carry. And yet, deep inside this man was still the flame of truth. And when he saw, when they developed sonograms or whatever it was that they developed, where they could see the baby in the womb, they he realized, no, no, this is a human being. We cannot kill it. No one is beyond hope. What do you think the people around Jesus that day at this crucifixion thought of those thieves that were crucified with him? Did they think they were beyond hope? Well, one of them actually did. But the other one said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what was Jesus' promise to him? This day, you'll be with me in paradise. The reason that we need to show love to others, not a mealy mouth, washy washy love, but a love that shares the truth, is because the perfection of brotherly love, is actually in the love of one's enemy. I'm writing a book right now on St. John Chrysostom, which I hope to have finished this summer. And he makes a huge emphasis upon this. More than any other church father, he talks about the necessity of forgiveness. Because when we carry bitterness or hate inside of us, you know what it does? It's like a cancer. It just eats away at you and tears you up. Jesus put it more beautifully than any of us. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and reign on the just and the unjust. So if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So living with love, forgiveness, compassion, makes a huge difference in the world. I want to end with a very short illustration of that. And I'm hesitant to say it because it sounds like I'm praising myself, but it's just because I'm too lazy to think about other examples. About a year and a half ago, there's this park in my, my town. I live in Champaign, Illinois. And there's a park there, a big, big park downtown. And a lot of the homeless people would spend time there when the weather was decent. So one day I was walking down the street and this man came and asked me for money. And I gave him a little bit of money and asked him his name and he told me. And then he spoke about, thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. And I said, well, you're a Christian. And he said, yes. And I said, I am too. So every few days I came back to visit, his name was Todd. And he had you know, some of his homeless friends there and there was a woman there named Jeanette, which was also, you know, she had a very terrible life when she was a girl, when she was a teenager. And so I got to know them and became friends with them. And by the way, here's something I learned. Some of them do need money, but you know what they need more than money? Can you guess what they need more than money? They just need somebody who cares about them. There's homeless people out there. They just need somebody who cares. So I would just go down there. And sometimes I'd take my Bible, and Todd would take out his Bible, and we'd read the Bible together. And he was the theologian. He would teach me. I never told him I was a theological professor. But it didn't matter, did it? Because I wasn't there to be educated. I was there to be his friend. And so we spent months, I don't know, it must have been nine months or so. One afternoon, it was last fall, I went to see him on a Tuesday afternoon. And we talked and we prayed and Jeanette was there and some of the other people were there. And we, you know, I'd become friends with him over time. I came back the next day to see him again. And they told me that Todd had been killed somebody come along and stamped his head into the sidewalk. And you know what? It was really funny. Because all the homeless people that I knew there, they knew Todd. They loved him. They had kind of a community there together. But Todd had an effect upon these people. And it was a beautiful thing just to watch. Yes, he was an alcoholic. Yes, he was a broken man. Yes, he had all the problems you can imagine, but he loved God. And that came through to me and to his friends who are homeless with him. Let's reach out to these people that are in need. And I just don't mean to the homeless, because believe me, if you were to go down to let's say Washington U, because I've been, you know, I worked on campuses for years. Believe me, there's a lot of homeless people They don't have a spiritual home, Those young people. They're wandering around in a spiritual desert and they don't know where they're going. They need Jesus Christ. My friend, God has given us. He's placed us here in this moment, in this time of history to be his agents of goodness and to bring these consolations to these troubled times in which we live. We may be persecuted because we don't conform, but we may also be the instruments to snatch out of the fire many who are in danger of eternity without God. Let's love them enough to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit good and gracious Heavenly Father. I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here tonight. I pray that you inspire them so that until they draw their last breath on earth, they will be your instruments of grace and mercy and love for the world. We thank you for your Holy Catholic Church. We thank you for the Eucharist the sacraments. Bless us and keep us as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If I may take just one minute and tell you something that I've never told any other group and I've given hundreds of these talks. Out in the foyer tonight you'll find a book entitled The Mystery of the Altar. I've never promoted my own books. But this one I believe in because mainly it's not mine. It's the great thoughts of the saints that a friend of mine and I put together. 365 days... Every day, there's a meditation on the Eucharist. If you believe that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, the truly Jesus Christ, then the Eucharist should be the center of your life. This book was designed to help you to grow closer to Christ as you feed your mind with the great saints of the past, and as you receive Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. So I would encourage you, just go by there. And there's also a brochure there for a project that I'm working on. If you want to just take one to pray for me, pray for us, everybody that's, there's a bunch of people involved in this, this project. And thank you so much for having me this evening, and, and God bless you. St. Angela Marici, pray for us. God bless you.